This is a diet of Brussels. Ah, I don't think that I've been quite good uh, on this podcast. I don't think I've sworn at all, but I'm very, very tempted. Hence the slightly uh, risque title uh, on the listings. Um, I thought that perhaps at some point in all of this there would come some clarity. I guess I thought that last week was going to provide that clarity, but it's clear that actually we are in as much confusion and uncertainty as we have been throughout this entire process. The past week really was uh, thought to be a, a moment at which you would get some major movements. The intention of the meaningful vote was to provide some clarity about how much or indeed little support uh, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement uh, uh, commanded in the Commons uh, and that that would open up some paths uh, of which there are not that many and that somehow we would uh, go into Christmas knowing with a, a certain degree of confidence that uh, some options were no longer on the table which is not a terribly positive way of putting it, but frankly, uh, my expectations these days are rather low. Instead, what we have got is a week of what I hesitate to call high drama, because actually a lot of it wasn't that dramatic. But we had a lot of things going on, all of which ended up with not really finding anything that had changed. So what I'm going to try and do in this episode is unpack all of the things that happened last week, and explain why I don't think they actually have made that much difference. So, uh, let's start with the UK side of things, because that's the more complex, pertinent uh, aspect. Now, we've known, and I've talked about this before for a long time, that the issue has not been the deal so much as uh, getting the deal approved in uh, the UK. And so we had this long run-up. We had two weeks of debates. Theoretically, there was a grid of news, although in practice you wouldn't have noticed, uh, where the government was going to go out and sell the withdrawal agreements and the political declaration, and that all of this was going to culminate in uh, a big push to get uh, as good a result in the uh, in the vote on the Tuesday evening uh, as possible. Now, as the two weeks went on, it became clear that well, A, number 10 didn't seem to have their heart in it, really. They weren't, certainly weren't generating a huge deal of momentum uh, behind their text. Uh, not a great deal of enthusiasm by anyone uh, either. So um, by the Monday, uh, the decision seemed to have been taken that there was not going to be a vote, that uh, the beating that was likely to ensue uh, really painted... Uh, number 10 in a very bad light and so it was better to pull the vote and maybe just try and come back again. Now part of that calculation was also that there was the European Council on Thursday and Friday where Theresa May might have been able to go and get something in the way of helpful words and we'll talk about why that didn't work shortly. Now the immediate consequence of pulling the vote was to uh, hack off uh, the Speaker of the House, who doesn't like this kind of uh, procedural shenanigans, uh, to really annoy uh, quite a few uh, Tory MPs who really felt that Theresa May was denying them the opportunity to have voice. And so uh, that was a key contributory factor in 
the developments through Monday and into early past Tuesday of submitting letters uh, calling for a vote of confidence. Now, one of the things that's really interesting and hasn't been talked about so much is that it seems that also part of the reason for that finally getting across the threshold, which as we know uh, was a problem beforehand, was that some pro-EU MPs also put in letters. Now, there's a a benign and a Machiavellian interpretation uh, uh, available uh, on that. Now, the benign view is that Theresa May not only annoyed uh, the hard Brexiters, but also the uh, the soft and the pro EU Brexiters by not letting them have a vote. So here they are. They're feeling that they've got some uh, momentum behind their people's votes, and you know here it is uh, being snatched away from them because if you don't have a vote, it's very hard to to move that agenda forward. So that's the kind of the the simple view. But there's also a more Machiavellian view, which is that Number Ten might have encouraged people like that and indeed some uh, government supporters uh, to put in letters to force the uh, vote quickly. And certainly one of the things that was really striking about Tuesday was that we went from uh, a standing start uh, to uh, a uh, a vote on the Wednesday evening uh, with very little delay. So some of the original plans around the meaningful vote had been uh, about doing this uh, this week, uh, so there'd be time to group, to organise, to plot, uh, to machinate. And instead, uh, Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, really just pushed very hard and very quickly to get this happening. Now, that I understand, I think, was done in uh, coordination with the Whips Office and with Number 10 uh, on the argument that we don't want to be messing around. But clearly, rushing this. Uh, meant that opposition didn't have chance to really uh, organise itself so well. And certainly there are a lot of really annoyed uh, uh, ERG uh, members who feel that uh, Graham Brady stabbed them in the back. So talk about you know replacing him. Now, um, whatever the, the consequence of that, Tuesday and then into Wednesday became embroiled very much in questions of what was going to happen. Uh, with the vote, who was uh, likely to vote for, who was likely to go against. A lot of uh, crowdsourcing of media of uh, media statements by individual MPs trying to work out if they were for or against. But the thing was fairly clear at the beginning was that uh, May was going to win. The question was how many uh, votes was she going to get against her. Now that matters because I think we have to assume that anyone who voted against her on Wednesday night, and remember that was 117 of her 317 MPs, so uh, over a third, each of those is unlikely to vote in favour of her withdrawal agreement. That at the, t- at the moment the only issue on the agenda is the withdrawal agreement. So she uh, certainly had won, and she won by a bigger majority than the, uh, the referendum, which a lot of... Uh, commentators pointed out uh, was surprising given how much uh, those on the losing side protested that uh, it wasn't fair uh, when they had protested that the results in the referendum had been very decisive that um, uh, she certainly has uh, a first indication of quite how bad her rebellion problem is and it's a bad problem that 117 MPs Plus, you have to also assume quite a few of those who voted to keep her as Prime Minister will vote against the withdrawal agreement. So when she's got knocking on half of her parliamentary party not in favour of 
the withdrawal agreement, the only conceivable way she has of, well, the only two conceivable ways she has of getting a majority for the text that is currently uh, under consideration is either to get a radical change to that text or it is to reach across the aisle. Now, on this, uh, perhaps the most striking feature of last week is that the Labour Party has really been nowhere to be seen. They have kept a very low profile, they've not engaged in anything, they've let the Tories crack on with things, partly, it has to be said, because they themselves have no clearer sense of what the right thing to do is uh, at this point, and so there's no point drawing more attention than is strictly necessary to their own confusion. Uh, so, uh, keeping Stumm uh, has uh, a clear benefit to them. Uh, however, I think the, the the view of the Labour Party right now is that they see this still very much as an opportunity to bring down the government, that uh, the hesitation about bringing a motion of no confidence in Parliament uh, is down to the fact that they recognise that uh, that will be lost uh, at the moment, that Tory MPs, DEP MPs are really not that uh, keen to risk a general election uh, uh, because uh, they fear that they might lose. They're going to have Theresa May, they're going to have to go through all of the uh, woes of last summer um, again. And so uh, they might not like Theresa May or the withdrawal agreement, but they can change that without changing uh, government. So Labour doesn't want to go down the route of a people's vote at this point because uh, the leadership, frankly, doesn't think that that's a good uh, idea. It's not very keen either on the process or the potential outcome. So uh, better to let things hang. But what's clear is that they also have no willingness to go down the road of supporting the withdrawal agreement. So we have a government that doesn't have a majority and can't realistically get a majority for the text as it stands now, which is one of the reasons why uh, Theresa May popped over to Brussels on Thursday to the European Council with the hope that her other European leaders would see the same situation and that would reach out and help a friend in need. Now, again, I think this is uh, one of the more concerning developments around Brexit is that that was very badly mis misjudged, that this was as bad a European Council for her as any she's been to, and she's been to quite a few uh, ones that have been bad. So this is a kind of a Salzburg uh, level of misjudgment that the UK thinks that uh, the EU will get it out of the hole and that there will be movement. Already on Thursday morning, the EU uh, senior figures, member states, uh, leaders, have been very, very clear indeed in really unambiguous language that there was nothing that was going to change about the deal. They said the same at the European Council meeting itself. The conclusions got tightened up uh, during the Thursday to remove anything that suggested that there was uh, a possibility. And basically, they are saying this is the only text. And Theresa May having to leave uh, on the Friday with her tail very much between her legs. Now, from the EU side, you can understand this in a number of different ways. One is simply exhaustion, that they can't believe that the UK, just a few weeks, and it is only a few weeks, since signing up to this withdrawal agreement, now wants to come back and renegotiate any of it. 
they listen and watch the debates here in the UK, which still talks about the same things in the same misguided way that uh, it always has, that the level of understanding in the British debate about the backstop is really very poor indeed. Uh, and uh, the EU really doesn't know quite how it can do it uh, in any simpler language. So certainly I saw some reports who were saying, you know, they just about stopped from using some pictures and speaking slowly to help uh, the UK try and get the message. But frankly, even if they did that, uh, and in some cases they kind of have done, uh, the message really hasn't sunk in as to what the backstop is and isn't. Now that frustration also is matched by a clear understanding of how this negotiation works. That if the UK can't buy into that agreement, then basically the EU is prepared to live with a no deal. That uh, it won't like the no deal, it hurts the EU, but it hurts the UK an awful lot more. That the weight of the costs sits very, very clearly on the UK's shoulders. So uh, there is an assumption of rationality by the EU that the UK will see that it might not like the withdrawal agreement, no one likes the withdrawal agreement, but it is the least worst of the alternatives on the table. All of that really has then taken us into a weekend and now into this week with no real change uh, on the basic dynamics. Theresa May still doesn't have her majority for her deal. The uh, critics that she faces don't have a majority for any of their options, whether that's a people's vote or a renegotiation or an extension or a revocation. Um, we have one majority that clearly exists in Parliament, which is not wanting a no-deal Brexit. However, that remains highly problematic. Uh, for the simple reason that no deal is the default option. It's what happens if nothing else gets decided. So to be against the default requires you to make a decision to do something else. And again, we come back to that problem that none of the things that you can do, stopping the process, extending the process, accepting the deal, is at present in command of a majority. Now, uh, that message, I think, very much has not got through uh, to MPs. And again, it's one of the things that uh, number 10 is trying to explain that uh, in its phrasing, the only two options are May's deal or no deal, uh, and saying that those are the only two things that can happen. There are the, the other two options. Um, the renegotiation, I think, doesn't look credible without a major change of policy and uh, probably of personnel uh, at the top of government. And the revocation issue, well, that's an interesting one. And it's probably worth thinking about that a little bit because one of the things that got lost in the heat and noise of last week was the ruling from the Court of Justice in the Whiteman case. Now, this was a case brought by uh, 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 a Scottish court who wanted clarification uh, on a test case about uh, whether the UK could uh, revoke Article 50. Importantly, whether it could revoke it unilaterally. Now, in a very speedy judgment, and it's exceptionally speedy, the Court of Justice basically accepted that 
the UK was in a position, or any member state that starts Article 50, is in a position to stop the process by itself without the approval of anyone else, of the other member states. So the principle basically is, is that you're a member state until you're not a member state, and if you decide that you don't want to stop being a member state, then that's your right as a participant, and no one can stop you. Now, really importantly, in the initial uh, opinion that had been written by the Advocate General, who uh, advises the court uh, on uh, relevant issues, uh, he had suggested that there should be some good faith requirements uh, in that, that uh, you couldn't just... uh, submit your revocation and then uh, you know the next day hand in your notice again and reset the clock. Um, the court decided that actually you didn't need to have those good faith requirements. So there is now a, a potential in the system, which I think might be an issue, not in this case, but certainly for other countries that might explore this, where uh, tentative submissions of uh, countries feel less inhibited about submitting their notice because they know that they can pull it back and they can uh, toy with the system uh, quite easily. But in terms of what is needed uh, for the EU, the the commitments, uh, the requirements seem very, uh, the the absolute minimum. Basically, the, the court said that you need to have followed the relevant national procedure, so something equivalent to the process that you had followed to submit your notification in the first place. Um, and under constitutional law, that would be uh, a bit in Parliament. Uh, so uh, you don't need to have a referendum uh, legally, uh, even if you do politically. Um, so it's made it very much easier for the UK to stop this process. Um, but uh, again, the, the problem is has never been on revocation that uh, it was about the EU blocking this. It was always about... Uh, how would a British government get to a point where stopping uh, was a preferred policy? And certainly, how would it do that without a second uh, popular vote to confirm that decision? Now, (coughs) I'll say here that, uh, because a lot of people ask me a lot of the time, um, is uh, that people's vote doesn't actually look like it is that likely still. it certainly is on the radar in a way that is very much stronger and very much more evident than it was even just a few weeks ago. That the the, the blockage elsewhere has pushed quite a few people towards saying we have to to go back to the population to get some kind of steer on this. The reasons for its uh, its unlikelihood uh, remain the same. That uh, there is a problem around. Uh, a government giving up uh, control, uh, ironically, to uh, the people when it has never evinced any interest in doing such a thing uh, previously. There is still the issue around what the question would be, the legitimacy of the process, the legitimacy of the outcome. Uh, All of those things, which I've talked about before, are just really big problems and uh, it doesn't actually at the moment serve that many people's interests very clearly. It's clearly for those who remain it is the best option that they have on uh, that's even vaguely on the cards to secure remaining but for everyone else uh, which has to include both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn uh, it is not 
the best way to secure what they want. So that uh, if you are leaving, then a second referendum really doesn't actually help that much. So let's try and put all this together. Because we still have the same situation, because we still have the same likely blockage when we have uh, a meaningful vote, uh, apparently early in January or middle of January, we are going to have the same uncertainty that assuming that nothing much is going to change between now and then, uh, the government will then have to make a decision about how it's going to change policy. We're going to run up against that uh, January 21 uh, deadline where Parliament will be able to give uh, its opinion about what should happen. But really, there's this uh, complete lack of uh, direction. And a lot of this is very tactical kind of positioning. Let's see where we are when we get there rather than trying to plan ahead. Now, having said that, I think it's worth stressing that there is some thought about what comes. Um, and one thing that is a little appreciated factor in all of this is that the meaningful vote is only the first part of UK ratification. You still have to get a bill through Parliament to embody the provisions in UK law. Now, uh, that means that any majority for this withdrawal agreement can't just be for one night only on the night of the meaningful vote. It needs to be a sustained coalition that lasts several months. There's also the problem that, that the legislation, which is not just that... Uh, uh, legal bill but other legal bills too all of that takes parliamentary time and there isn't a huge amount of parliamentary time left so um, parliament really does have to get going if it wants to have any chance of getting all the necessary legal paperwork in place and in force by the 29th of March and again this I think is going to raise the issue of whether uh, an extension of article 50 of a short nature is required just to allow uh, the UK to get over the line. But right now, the, the is it psychosis? Probably not, but let's say it is. Uh, the psychosis around uh, the meaningful vote means that the planning on the part of uh, government, of Parliament's time, is relatively poor, which means that uh, they're not really thinking about all those other things that need to happen, and certainly not uh, to the extent of we have to think about them because we actually got to deal with them. So we're, we're running the, the risk of a situation where uh, the government is going to have to rush through uh, a lot of things where there might not be as much time for scrutiny as uh, might be hoped. Uh, there's the whole issue of how it's going to manage its relationship with the Lords, uh, which is much more problematic, which will cause endless problems. All of this is to say that actually, whilst not much is likely to happen over Christmas, something probably does need to happen over Christmas. So I think in the next uh, few days, uh, certainly during this week, I think we should be looking for signs that there is uh, movement on that front. That uh, if there is, that suggests uh, a real determination to, to get this through. If there isn't, unfortunately, I think it might just... Uh, suggests that number 10 really doesn't feel that it's in a position to do anything uh, at this point uh, and that uh, there's probably uh, a value in letting things lie. So in answer to the question in the title of what is going on, uh, no one really knows.
and uh, we're running into the kind of time period where I know I've said this before but time is really short and that there will be some really difficult situations to come and uh, not much time to deal with those so all that time that we've had in the article 50 process where we had long breaks or we didn't really talk about things or we couldn't move them forward and I would say well you can use the time now but it means you won't have it for later this is the later and it was always clear that this process of ratification was going to be really painful for the UK so uh, the sooner that the government moves on things the sooner that it works out what it is going to do the sooner everyone can start to actually plan for their lives one way or the other that's not really much of a Christmas message uh, but there you go uh, I've been talking about this stuff now for what it's two and a half three years something like that yeah, it's three and a half years actually because it's since the 2015 election so a lot of the things that are problems have always been problems Maybe the last more upbeat, less downbeat, yeah, less downbeat message is that in the past, when we've had these kinds of situations, ultimately the outcome has been that the UK government has uh, ended up getting its way through. Not because of any great enthusiasm, but because nobody has a real alternative that commands widespread support. At the moment, that looks like what... Uh, the situation is at the moment. There's a lot of unhappiness, but there isn't a clear consensus around an alternative course of action. With that in mind, I actually, bizarrely, and I don't know how, think that this withdrawal agreement still is more than likely to get approved by the 29th of March, simply because there isn't uh, something else that stands in its way. Of course, I also know from the last three and a half years that it's foolish to predict anything because things usually change rather quickly. As and when they do, I will come back to you and I will come so uh, in a, a spirit of humility uh, and hopefully not too much confusion and we'll talk about it. Anyway, have a great Christmas period and a happy new year for 2019 and let's look forward to all the wonderful things that it will bring. Bye-bye.